grab your Necronomicon, and leave your sanity at the door because we're headed to Miskatonic University this week on Making Excuses. Hey there, it's your host, Chase Carter. Uh, we're in the wildcard week of the Ideas Month, so if you remember, as they planned out, we're going to have one month a week where we fall off the curriculum and do something a little bit more in the writing excuses norm, and this week we are covering Lovecraftian Horror. Uh, the crew did their recording at the Writing Excuses Getaway. Um, they normally have like a summer uh, writing camp where everybody can come and workshop and talk to everybody and they have Q&As. They have author Sherry Priest with them this week to talk about Lovecraftian horror. Uh, Sherry Priest has put out, uh, I think at this point, something close to 17 or 18 books. Her most popular series is the Clockwork Century series, which uh, takes like the Civil War era and injects quite a lot of steampunk into it. And then also the Borden Dispatches, two books that take the... Uh, the figure, the infamous figure, Lizzie Borden, uh, who axed her parents and puts her in the protagonist role as the sort of last savior of humankind against a eldritch horror rising from the oceans in Massachusetts. Um, so they've invited her on to do a little talk about Lovecraftian horror. And the first thing we should probably talk about is the difference between Lovecraftian horror and the Lovecraft mythos, which has kind of devolved or I guess diverged and become two separate things. When we talk about the Lovecraft mythos, we're talking about uh, Cthulhu, Nyarlathep, uh, the the old gods um, and everything around that that sort of entered popular culture and spawned a lot of movies and comic books and other books and games and all that sort of stuff. While Lovecraftian horror is more of a genre title, a way to describe a uh, style of writing that Lovecraft started off and that other people have picked up and sort of perfected or at least carried on the tradition for. So we're going to be focusing on Lovecraftian horror and what that means for uh, genre writing. Um, And Sherry starts off by saying uh, that Lovecraft, the way he wrote is he wanted to write things that would frighten an atheist. So we're not talking about stuff that uh, is frightening from an internal damnation of your soul or, uh, you know, anything like that has to do with angels and demons, the more puritanical sense of religion uh, or the more Catholic horror, uh, like you could call probably Dante's Inferno a lot of uh, uh, something close to religious horror. But the Lovecraftian horror tends to play on existential threats and mental instability uh, as uh, ways to throw the protagonist into uh, danger. So in this genre, you also see, and what they talk about is that the protagonist oftentimes is not incompetent, like you would see in other horror genres. Think about the Friday the 13th movies, uh, any other scream, all those movies where the protagonists make very dumb decisions and playing on that very dumb decision making is sort of cliche in itself. I'll point to Cabin in a Woods as a nice deconstruction of those genre tropes. But oftentimes in Lovecraftian horror, your protagonist is someone who is well thought of in the science community or the intellectual community or just whatever uh, societal construct they come from. And the choices that they make are not incompetent, stupid ones that lead to their own downfall. This is not like humanity causing its own death, but this is more them coming up against something that no matter their power, no matter their influence, you cannot fight this threat. So that's why we get the great old ones, these uh, cosmic horrors that 
all the power of humanity, even combined, cannot do anything to stop the threat of this power. And what is the fallout, both mental and physical, from that? It also posits that a loss of sanity is worse than uh, the loss of life. That if you were to go insane, that is a worse threat than dying. Uh, oftentimes these books are told from the first person perspective so that way we can get inside the mind of our protagonist because oftentimes that's where the real horror takes place is as their perception of reality crumbles and falls apart what they view is often worse than what we could see from the outside uh, and dan posits that facing the brutality and that brutal insignificance of human existence is what often causes the madness of our protagonists that if they were to die, it would be a release from the knowledge that they now have of these things that are greater, far greater and far more terrifying than anything humans could uh, make up. Lovecraft's fiction often comes in two flavors or two different overarching themes, and that is the oceanic and the cosmic threat. Oftentimes it is the same sort of uh, pantheon of gods, the great old ones, Cthulhu and his ilk. Maybe they rise from the oceans, maybe they descend from space. Um, but in either case, the threat either comes from above humanity or below humanity. And say what you will with the, uh, what that means for his uh, influences from like a, a sort of like a Catholic or Christian belief that we exist in a plane of humanity, a mundane plane, and then there are there are angels and God above us, hell and demons below us that we can make sense of directionally and that it's powers from either one of those realms that affect humanity. But in Lovecraft's case, neither one is good or bad. They're both so overwhelmingly powerful and apathetic to humanity that they are a threat nonetheless. So we cannot talk about Lovecraft without talking about the sort of person that he is. And this is well documented and well discussed. So I'll touch on it a little bit because I think it, you always should. But it's not going to be central to this podcast. Um, we'll talk probably later on when the crew does about the can of worms that is uh, appreciating art beyond its creator. There are a lot of fiction writers and genre fiction writers, especially who were problematic people for their time uh, and or maybe went on to be problematic people. And whether you choose to continue to enjoy their works is oftentimes a very personal question. So, yes, Lovecraft was racist, sexist, classist, uh, a lot of different things. He had disparaging and often despicable remarks about lots of groups of people from uh, African-Americans or uh, blacks to the Jewish to women to anybody who wasn't waspy enough, uh, basically. But a lot of people have argued if that was an intentional theme in his writing or if it was less insidious than that i don't know i haven't studied lovecraft enough to tell you but even in one of the stories that i read there is some problematic writing and viewpoints but for the sake of what he's done for the genre we're going to at least in this podcast look past all that okay so that said sherry priest did touch on this because as a lovecraftian writer she often gets asked this question her comments i think were pretty succinct and you know like i said this is a personal thing so this is how she views it if you're different that it doesn't invalidate the way you feel, just like your views don't invalidate hers. She says that nobody hates anything that they aren't afraid of, and Lovecraft was afraid of everything. She also doesn't take it too personally. It's such a broad hatred, and it was so long ago that it's hard to take it personally. And she tries to view his contributions to the genre as a greater good than any of his views might, uh, that he might have had. Okay, so let's talk about Lovecraftian writing and what it can do for us as writers. What can we draw from Lovecraftian horror? 
You don't have to write Lovecraftian horror to draw inspiration and learn lessons from this. Although, if you want to, by all means, go ahead. It's a wonderful genre. It's fascinating to read. It has a wide audience. Uh, Lovecraft and his works have, in the 20th and 21st century, found a new audience and a new popularity. So you would have a lot of peers and a, quite a large audience, I think, if you wanted to write in that genre or subgenre. But beyond what genre you want to write in, let's try to glean some lessons from his writing. So... Uh, one of the biggest characteristics of Lovecraftian horror is taking the mundane and making it frightening. And later on, I'm going to discuss two short stories that the crew mentioned, uh, The Rats in the Walls and The Color from Space, or The Color Out of Space, excuse me. Um, so I would recommend if you haven't to go and read those or maybe reread those. I'm going to try to stay as spoiler-free as possible, but I will be talking thematically and tonally about the piece. So it's probably best to go read those uh, before I get into that discussion. That'll be in the last part of the episode before the exercise. But making the mundane frightening can be a really powerful tool for our writing. Oftentimes, the threat that your characters will face or that you want to convey is not a physical external one. Maybe it is mental. Maybe it is beyond the senses, the five senses of your uh, protagonist. Learning how to describe this thing that may be mundane to others but has taken on a frightening or horrific element is especially powerful. And Dan says that if you take careful word, word choice along with a vivid description, you can often get that effect. How does it affect the five senses? What do you see that is outside of the norm? What do you smell or hear that is outside of the norm? Because it's often that very subtle twisting of what we view as normal that horror springs from. Take something that is familiar and make it unfamiliar. I think that's why things like clowns are very scary. It's something that we are familiar of that has been twisted to be made insidious. It's a corrupted corruption of the innocent sort of thing. So take that in mind. Corrupt the innocent or the mundane in small ways that make it seem frightening and horrific. Brandon also talks about making subtle changes from page to page. Uh, Lovecraft wrote a lot of short stories so that you could see from the start to the end the sort of gradual mounting of horror. It wasn't a big sudden reveal. Uh, it wasn't a sort of like jump scare sort of thing like we get in modern horror movies or something like that. It was very much a gradual realization of a truth that sort of itched below the psyche, something that we might have seen foreshadowed or had an inkling of. And it's not exactly a surprise, but when we finally get to that culmination point, it is so horrific and so fascinatingly awful that we can't look away, like a like a car wreck or an especially disgusting bit of molded food. Yes, you know it's awful and you wouldn't imagine eating it, but something about it just fascinates you. And I think that's a key to successful Lovecraftian horror, is that those descriptions bring up all these emotions that normal things don't normally convey. Sherry also talked about what she called the Russian nesting doll of isolation. Uh, Lovecraft's fiction she calls the uh, the ultimate fiction of the, or the ultimate genre of the other. Um, most of his protagonists or the people that he writes about are othered in a lot of different ways. And so if you take this Russian nesting doll of othering, of isolation, you can really convey that horror uh, from an existential uh, sense. So start with mundane isolation. It might be physical or geographical. A lot of Lovecraft's destinations are small towns in like Massachusetts or the, uh, the Northeast or out in the wilderness or, you know, like shacks, glades of trees, swamps, anything like this. 
isolation from physical. So you're not around society. You're not around the safety and comfort of other people and lights and culture and all that sort of stuff. So that's the first level of isolation. And then you can take a societal isolation where your protagonists themselves, for whatever reason, have been ostracized, uh, put out um, in Rats in the Walls. Our protagonist, his family has been shunned because of terrible things they apparently did in their past. Um, and in The Color Out of Space, our protagonist like physically lives in a place out in the woods away from the rest of the town. And as things progress, that isolation uh, expands and becomes more real. And then you can have a, uh, a sort of intellectual or scientific isolation where their knowledge either sets them apart or what is happening to them is happening outside of their understanding of the, of the real world, of the natural world. And so these laws no longer make sense. And so they cannot rely on that information. And then finally, it ramps up to that existential, that, me that me mental, that cosmic isolation where now they are cut off from their own humanity and their own mental acuity and things very rapidly begin to degrade and fall apart. And now we're at that culmination of insanity that trademarks uh, Lovecraftian horror. But if you can start at that outer layer, layer and describe it as you get down to that that core, uh, you will have a more, I think, successful horror story on your hands. Um, Sherry points out and she says that just as you think things are as bad as possibly going to get, you realize you're only halfway there as the reader. Um, and so that's good. You want to have that point where they're like, oh, God, this is as bad as it gets. Everything's falling apart. And you go up, 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 up. Hold on. We're just getting started. And then yeah, you have the, I think that will give your reader a sort of like more physical gut discomfort sense as they realize how much more they have to go through, but they're already on the ride. And it, it, hopefully if you're successful, they want to continue to read and find out just how bad it gets for your characters. Okay, let's discuss the two stories. Dan mentions one of his favorite stories is The Color Out of Space. And Brandon says one of his favorites is The Rats and the Walls. And so I read, I reread both of those. I'd read them years ago and forgotten most about them, but they're both very good short stories. And I think they're both very good representations of Lovecraft's work written in two different ways. So I'm going to talk first about their commonalities uh, so that we can sort of maybe draw out some, some genre standards that Lovecraft used in both of these stories that we can co-opt into our own writing. And then I'll talk about how they're different. So you can see if you want to write a, one specific kind of Lovecraftian horror, you can see the different ways you can go about the same archetype of story. So what do they have in common? So both stories begin with a physical description of a place along with their history. So in Rats in the Walls, we're talking about um, the De La Poix history along with the, uh, the Priory, his family's home back in England. And so we get a sense of place and also a, a sense of history of the place. In The Color Out of Space, we get a um, description of the place where everything goes down, the town, the shack, and the people there and the sort of history. He even mentions Miskatonic University close by, um, just to draw it into his New England world that he often built in. Um, so we have that physical description. So that gives us a real place. That's This is a geographical place that we can fix in our minds that is very much reality where things are going to go horribly wrong. But we have that nice foundation because oftentimes these stories are a deconstruction of our sense of reality. And so you have to have that sense of reality first before you can tear down the foundations. Um, next, the protagonist and the general public around these places often know that something is wrong. It's common folklore, it's uh, uh, stories, or it might be something that is, air quotes, wrong, but not the 
the main thread of the story. A sort of sense that this is not a normal place because Lovecraft stories do not take place in normal locations. Something is already sort of off about them. And maybe that offness, these strange days, uh, draw more strangeness to them. But this is interesting and different from a lot of horror where everybody is aware of the wrongness. This isn't like something that you need to reveal to your protagonist and therefore your reader. It's not something you keep hidden and then bring up. That wrongness is pervasive. And what you're going to be doing is taking that pervasiveness and then just sort of like swelling it up in magnitude until it reaches a point where it is no longer bearable. There's no there's no hiding it. There's no like cloak and dagger stuff or anything like that. There's no turnaround or twist. It's all there. You're just taking it beyond what should be reasonable. And then also the protagonist has this firsthand experience of this wrongness. They are intimately involved with things going bad. But at first they're going to deny that. Their experience is such that they they come up with rational explanations for why it must be happening. And then from there we will get into the bad stuff. Okay, so next up, in both stories there was mounting evidence that what they are experiencing is real to them or real in a sense. It's at this point where the paranoia and the dread really start to set in and affect our characters. They have an experience that they can't understand and so they seek that understanding because realize our protagonists are supposed to be rational people learned people or at least people that were not going to make obvious mistakes uh, they want to understand but they go about it in a rational way in rats in the walls he seeks his friend and then down the road professionals to help him out in color out of space our protagonist avoids the weirdness until he can no longer do it for the sake of a friendship so that paranoia and dread will start to mount at this point uh, or is starting to mount at this point and then they bring the others in and we get to the unavoidable truth that something is wrong with reality something that defies explanation is going on now it is a point of surviving it and then we get that the horror passes this threshold of imagination and now we get the symptoms of insanity their mental faculties are shutting down or denying what they're seeing or are being affected by something and then the fallout in both stories um, the threat that affects our protagonist goes on to offer an existential threat for humanity as a whole as a sort of lingering taste in the mouth after the story is done that this thing is abated or silenced but not exactly gone so now let's talk about what differs from the story so we can see the different ways that Lovecraft went about crafting this basic story idea. In Rats in the Walls, its effects are on the creatures and the environment first, and then later our protagonist, and then later everyone. But we see like the animals being affected first. And he even talks about in Rats in the Walls how this is a cliche thing of the dog barking at a ghost in a ghost story. But still, it's something that he can't deny that nature is being affected on an imperceptible human level. And then later on in Rats in the Walls, when we finally confront the horror, well, instead, we confront what the horror has done, what it's wrought on reality, but we'd never see the horror itself. It's never described just the fallout from that horror what it has done and it's not even the, the the horror itself the the threat but that fallout is what affects our protagonist in rats in the wall so so uh, acutely his mental faculties are uh, not even strong enough to witness this reality that is so different from his own and so that description is so powerful that it breaks a man and then the insanity quickly sets in and the fallout from this the rest of the story is quickly played out most of the time is spent describing the horrific or the wondrous or the, the fantastical elements that so deeply affect him. And then the insanity itself is described through first a revulsion on what he sees and then a quick warping of reality. That scene is very frenetic. It's very unfocused. 
and we're left not quite sure what exactly happened. You can piece together through context uh, probably what happened, but we're never given actual confirmation from the story or from the author. Conversely, in The Color Out of Space, it is not a quick scene where we understand what's going on. It's not like hints and hints and hints and hints that something wrong and then finally the nature of the wrongness is revealed. In Color Out of Space, that wrongness is gradually and painfully stretched out throughout the story of its effect on the natural world, its effect on uh, living creatures and life and the world and all this sort of stuff. We start off with the strangeness of the element that they find, but then its effect on the, the world where it was found is is played out over a year plus change and the the way it affects living creatures and then finally people uh, is grotesque there's a lot of body horror going on in the description so I think it's a lot more visceral and a lot more effective in the color out of space the descriptions are also the point of view is a little different in this story we start off with a framing device of a I believe he's a, a, a land surveyor who comes out to look at the land and picks up a story from a local Amy. And so he's describing Ami and his rendition of the story, and we hear about how it affects our framed point of view character first, and then we jump to the retelling from Ami. So it's sort of a third-person point of view. And then at a certain point, we get a modified first person where he's describing viscerally what Ami went through. And it's at that point that the dread is really ramped up and the horror is brought to the fore, and we, we see in full effect what has been going wrong in this little town for over a year now. And the culmination of all that is a lack of any agency or power at all. Amy plus some uh, deputies and police officers and some other people are stuck watching as events unfold. And then their only choice is to flee from this power, this uh, force that is uh, affecting their lives and their world in such horrific ways. So again, a different sort of culmination, a different breaking uh, a different sort of insanity. We get to witness insanity in other people in this one instead of like from the mind of somebody, but it still affects our protagonist, Amy, in very visceral and very real ways. Okay, so that's a talk about those two stories and from the episode, let's go to the writing prompt now. This is not an homework exercise, so we're not building on any of the uh, story sketches that we've done the last two weeks. This is something different. It's some free writing that you can do. So it can be any story you want. It's just something to sort of stretch your muscles in different ways, a different kind of mental exercise so that you can hopefully build some new skills. And the prompt for this week is to take a character and from that character's point of view, describe their reaction to something horrific and awful, but do so without describing the thing itself. And here's what I came up with. The barista belched from behind the counter. A slick erp sound like a garden hose clogged with decayed roughage. I looked up from my wallet, mildly amused, until I saw him wiping at an inky globule that had escaped from beneath his lip. He never paused at entering my order, nor made any gesture to acknowledge the faux pas. I mutely held out my cash, suddenly unsure of how to proceed. The fingers of one of his hands quested shakily towards it, his eyes seeming pinned to the rubber mats on his side of the counter. All the while, a black tongue made frenetic, questing jabs across his mouth. I tried to swallow, and could feel the gorge in my throat catch. Had I been able to breathe, it no doubt would have come in sudden, shallow, halting gasps. My hands darted back into the pockets of my flannel jacket, and I rubbed my fingers together, half expecting to feel them coated in some sticky tar. Turning away before the man behind the counter could offer my change, I found a seat near the cafe's window that overlooked the square. 
Sunlight warmed the grass, and a family lay soaking in the rays as a dog dug for small treasures beneath that lush, green carpet. I heard another guttural bubble erupt from the barista, followed by a wet slap against the concrete. He was louder now, breath hissing and frothing. Did no one else hear the man? I had noticed a few ensconced in noise by their headphones, but surely he could not keep on like this unremarked. Two more coughs, two more unknown masses thwapping against the ground. My leg twitched constantly beneath the window table, and my eyes fixed on the door. Three strides would bring me to the threshold and out into the warm sunlight. This man's behavior had cost me ten dollars and this cafe a customer, but another moment within earshot of that maddening, gulping noise had me wanting to scream and rend my nails through the wood of the table. My teeth chattered now, and the abrasive clacking of bone and enamel reminded me too much of screeching chalkboards. But even that was a sight better than imagining what sort of oily, mucusy discharge must fill that barista's mouth. That's it, I thought. No more. I grabbed my bag and made to stand when a hand tightened about my shoulder. The fingers twitched compulsively, and I could feel a viscous runnel pull in the collarbone beneath my shirt. Terror and fascinated awe froze my limbs and clamped my mouth shut. Before he spoke, I swore I could feel the words jostled loose from the mire of his guts, rising upwards like disturbed swamp gas. His mouth must have torn apart like a fresh scab, and the flecks that followed chilled my guts. Your latte. All right, so that's the story. Yeah, I don't write a lot of horror, so these sort of descriptions are new to me uh, a bit, or at least at this sort of intensity. I was not as successful at dis not describing the horror as I wanted to be. I'm n we're not sure like what's making the barista act in this manner, um, but I did try to focus a lot on how it made the protagonist feel, uh, the character in this scene feel. This is really difficult. Um, I I had a lot of fun writing this scene. I don't know how successful I was at being horrific. You know, the, the, the easiest kind of horror to do, I think, is that body horror because we all have bodies and we can imagine viscerally what would happen when those things are made disgusting or horrible uh, or out of the ordinary. But mentally, that's a bit harder to do. So uh, I would recommend practicing it. I'm going to keep practicing it because I think it's a good skill to have. So I think if I went back and I did it again, I don't know. I did try to take something normal, coffee, a coffee shop, and twist it imperceptibly. My feeling is that, like Brandon mentioned, you need a full length of a story or a book to really draw out that horror because it's the gradual twisting and warping and changing of reality, that mounting dread as you go through, uh, that really brings this sort of horror to, uh, home to roost and really make it the most powerful. Uh, we need to understand what's going on, feel it rising, have like what we think is an anticipation of how bad it's going to get, and then have the story bust right past those expectations and keep going to a point that we can't even imagine. And that's hard to do in a 400-word exercise. So I would recommend trying to do a whole short story. Just this, But this is free writing. You know, it's just practice, something to stretch the muscles and make an attempt of it. So I think for an attempt, it was fairly, fairly successful. But feel free to write in or tweet at me and let me know uh, what you thought about it. All right, so we've reached the end of this uh, this topic, this episode. We have one more one more week in the idea month, and I think it's going to be a Q&A. It might be another return to topic. And then, then after that, in episode five, we'll move on to our second month with a whole new topic. I believe we're doing characters. So you have that to look forward to.
but covering horror for one week was really fun and interesting. And I was uh, glad to get the chance to do some rereading of Lovecraftian horror. I really love those short stories. Okay, I'm going to do another recommendation and following the theme for this week's episode, I'm going to recommend some horror related stuff. It's not gonna be a book this week. I listen to a lot of podcasts that probably shouldn't surprise you. <laughs> it's why I wanna do one. I'm really enamored with the genre. So I'm going to recommend two podcasts that I think would really help you explore some more uh, Lovecraftian horror in different storytelling formats. The first is, I think, for podcast a gimme. It's uh, Welcome to Night Vale. It was one of the first podcasts I picked up and it's the one that really ignited my love for the uh, medium. It obviously draws a lot of inspiration from Lovecraftian horror with a bit of a whimsical bent, but never too much. It is not overtly a happy series, but I think I would call it, at, at the end of the day, a hopeful series. Definitely more hopeful than a lot of Lovecraftian horror is, but yeah. Uh, it is set in a desert town called Night Vale, where a lot of these Lovecraftian threats are sort of commonplace for the people there. So I definitely check that out. The second one is another podcast called Tannis. Uh, I first heard of it thanks to uh, Hank Green on Twitter. Um, and within two days, I had devoured the entire backlog. It is a story about a journalist, Nick Silver, who is searching for Tannis, one of the last reported mysteries of the internet age. Um, it is a mystical place that may or may not exist still in this world. His search leads him into a lot of mysteries and a lot of conspiracies and a lot of eldritch worships and cults and all this other stuff. Um, and it's told from a first person sort of reporter uh, sort of vibe. Um, it's by Pacific Northwest Stories. Uh, and I will link both of these podcasts in the show notes so that you can get to them easily. But I re definitely recommend both of them. Wonderful podcast with wonderful sound design and voice acting and casts and writing and just the whole package. Um, so, yeah, after you're finished listening to this one, go spend some time wisely and listen to those very good podcasts. So until next week, uh, have a good one and happy writing. Happy writing.